It is always a delight to be able to preach God's word and to be a part of a congregation and the work that the congregation does. And I do appreciate the congregation here at Ulaga so very much. And the fact that we are able to be here and uh, in Oklahoma with really with our grandkids and our kids <laughs> and enjoy them. But we appreciate the church here. I do wish that I was able to get out more as far as preaching and teaching and as far as OABS reports and things like that, but I'm not able to get out because of the different junk that's going on in the world. And so we're not able to be out as much as we'd like to be. I actually uh, had made the agreement when I became the director of OABS that I would be out once a month. But then you had the coronavirus that hit and now we have the other things that have gone on, but Lord willing, we'll be able to get out and do that more often. Each person in life have various triumphs that take place. And we look back over our lives and we can see the various triumphs that have taken place within our lives. And really, when you look at those kind of things, it's, it's really from our own perspective because sometimes things that are important to us and that we feel like that we've been victorious in may not be important to anybody else. And then sometimes things that look like and people think, well, that's been a great victory in that person's life or a great triumph in that person's life. And that person doesn't think anything about that. We all have, and we can remember our triumphs and even we dream of triumphs that will come in the future, do we not? And I hope that we do. We have various things within our lives that we think about as far as the things that we would like to accomplish, and we want to be triumphant in those things in the future. Now, with that in mind, the church of our Lord is a triumphant church in many ways in the past, in the present and in the future. And that's basically what we're going to be looking at in this way. Now, the word triumph simply means to, to obtain victory. It means to be, to be able to prevail. And we look back over the life and the history of Israel of the old, and we think about the different triumphs that they had. Of course, there were great defeats also when they didn't do the will of God, but there were many times great triumphs that they were a part of. And this, that certainly is true as far as the church is concerned. We can go back in history and we can see the church and recognize the various victories and the various triumphs that the church have prevailed through the centuries. And thus, we know that the church is a triumphant church. See, she has survived her inception and her birth in the first century. I mean, if the Jews had their way about it, the church would have ended before it ever began. If the Jews or the Romans had their way about it, they would have put an end to the church before it ever started. But the fact that it was able to be established and the fact that God established the church in Acts chapter 2 shows a great triumph that took place. But then she also survived persecution. One time in a Bible 
when I wasn't, I hadn't been a Christian very long, and I decided that I was going to mark in the book of Acts all the persecution that took place and highlight them in that particular Bible. And it was, I mean, it was almost 100%, not quite, but almost 100% of the book of Acts. I mean, from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, and on and on the list goes of all the different persecutions that came against the church. And that prevailed against the church for most of 300 years at its inception. Now, I chose to look at the fact that it was prevalent for 300 years, but was it not even after that? Well, yeah. Persecution against the Lord's church has taken place since its inception. And it has survived false teachers who have perverted the pure Jerusalem gospel. I think back over the years, yes, those first few hundred years there seemed to be a greater or a more severe persecution against the church. But then you look back at restoration history and you look back when the church became prevalent once again and people then began to try to pervert the church. They wanted to go back to denominationalism. They wanted to go back to where we came from. And I thought, I think about a particular preacher that I've known of the past. And he said, you know, I left all that stuff. I'm not planning on going back. And I decided long time ago, I left that stuff. I mean, I grew up in the denominational world and I left the denominational world and I don't plan to go back to it. And we must be triumphant over those false teachers. We must be able to, to defeat their reasoning and their, or their unsound reasoning. You know, history repeats itself, and we understand that. In fact, the most foolish man or the most foolish person is a person that does not learn from history. I don't know of anybody that could be more foolish than a person that doesn't learn from history other than maybe the person who doesn't learn from God. <laughs> that would be even more foolish. But nonetheless, history does repeat itself, and we need to do that. Many in our, our day and time, many churches in our day and time, and I'm not talking about denominational churches, I'm talking about the Lord's church. And sometimes we cannot tell the difference between some churches that have Church of Christ on their building than the denomination down the street. In fact, I remember going one place. I was invited to speak there. And when I walked into the building, I thought, man, I've walked into the Christian church. Now, they got a good Bible sermon that day, and they were a little bit more careful than they usually were. But I thought I was going back in time when I was growing up in the Christian church. How sad. But then, over the years, I've known of congregations of the Lord's Church that pick up denominational practices like the celebration of Christmas, put Christmas trees in their auditoriums or in their foyer. Some of them, they won't put it in the, in the auditorium, but they'll put them in the foyer and they'll celebrate Christmas just like it was a religious holiday. Brethren, find the book, chapter, and verse. You can't find it. 
It's not there. We need to be standing up against those things. And what I've noticed as far as, and we've been studying Hosea on Saturday, and I, what I've noticed about Hosea, and I've noticed this numerous times before, is one little tiny departure leads to a second departure, which leads to a third departure. Next thing you know, that departure is completely gone away. We've got to be careful about such. Many churches have fallen along the way because of persecution also. Then they don't want to be known for, for standing up for truth. They don't want to be known for, for being solid as a rock in the word of God. And so they are persecuted and they give up. Brethren, just because we are persecuted, like I asked one brother one time, he was talking about this very thing and what the church actually was doing to him. And I said, what's the worst thing they can do to you? And he looked at me funny and I said, well, the worst thing they can do to you is kill you. And all that's going to do is send you to the promised land. I mean, let's face the facts here. I mean, that's the worst that can happen. We need to stand up. Many churches will succumb to the false teachers because they do not heed the warnings and study for themselves. But some members, and I want to emphasize this other side of it, but some members of the Lord's church, some members of the churches of Christ, because of their dedication to the word of God and their dedication to a living Savior will be triumphant. And so we'll be looking at three basic points this morning or this evening. We'll look at the fact that we have already triumphed and that we will continue to triumph and that we'll, we'll ultimately triumph. So let's look then at the fact that we are going or we have triumphed already. Now we know that Christians have triumphed over sin. We know that sin is the transgression of God's law, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. We all know that we have all sinned, Romans 3 and verse 23. Now, I remember a number of years ago in a private study, and in that private study, in another state, it was here in the United States, and I, I foolishly asked, without defining what sin was, I foolishly asked, I said, I realize that I have sinned, don't you? And you know what this lady said? She said, well, no, I've never sinned. And I was really a little bit taken back by it. I never even thought about somebody not really understanding that concept. And I thought, well, I better go back to the scriptures and define sin. And when I define the sin according to what the scriptures teach, then she said, well, yeah, I've sinned. You know, we all have sinned and we need to be able to overcome that sin. We also know that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23. And when a Christian is saved, he or she triumphs then over sin. Now let's look at a few passages that help us to understand that. In Romans chapter 6, and I wish we had the time, and we could really spend the entire time on Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid that we who have died to sin should live any longer therein. But in Romans chapter 6, I want to emphasize verses 16 to 18. He said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are, 
to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. But God, now listen, but God be thanked that ye were the servants. Notice, ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. You think those folks were, were triumphant over sin? Clearly they were. They had obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Now I realize that that form of doctrine is, is thought about in two different ways. Some believe that it's talking about the scriptures as the form of doctrine. I believe if you go back in the context, the form of doctrine is a pattern of doctrine that was taught within that context. And if you go back to verses 4 through and 5, you'll learn that the pattern of doctrine was that we are buried with Christ, or that we are dead to sin, buried with Christ, raised up to walk in newness of life. I believe that's the form of doctrine that they were obedient to. You see, they became triumphant because they were obedient to the form of doctrine. And then Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. Now listen to what he's talking about there. Those that are in Christ Jesus, how do you get into Christ? Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 and 27 that we're baptized into Christ. And we also know from Ephesians 1 and verse 3 that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Well, one of the spiritual blessings that are in Christ is the forgiveness of sins. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But it, it, there's more to it than just that. It's not only no condemnation to being in Christ, we also have to not walk according to the flesh. We must walk according to the Spirit, the Spirit's direction. And then we have the forgiveness of sins. And then in 1 John chapter 2, or yeah, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John wrote, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We are triumphant over sin. And God has given us the ability to be triumphant over sin. But we're also triumphant over death. Now we know that death is a common theme in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he used the idea of worthy of death. But if you go back to the context here, he's talking about the decline that sin brings upon us. It really begins with not having a proper perspective or a proper respect for God Almighty. Now think about that for a second. I mean, can you imagine a person not respecting the very creator that has given us life? And yet... The world is full of thousands, even millions of people that have no respect for God. And because of that reason, 
Their sin became worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's that decline that you find in the book of Romans. And then finally, in, in the last verse of Romans chapter 1, he said that they are worthy of death. Now, the death there has to be spiritual death. And that's where people are headed. Over in chapter 5 and verse 12, Adam introduced into the world, and that's what this particular passage is about, Adam introduced into the world death. Now, we know that Adam actually introduced physical death, but he also, in a, in a sense, introduced spiritual death. Now, we don't die because of Adam's sin. I don't, don't even think that. And I realize that the rest of the, oh, the, the rest, the religious world and the denominational world talk about the inherited sin, that we inherit Adam's sin. You know, that's simply not the truth. We don't inherit Adam's sin. We die because of our own sin. Now, Adam introduced physical death, and we all will die. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this cometh the judgment. But I'm always amazed. I mean, I, I think back over the years, and, and I don't know how many funerals I've done. It's amazing, probably, if I actually counted them up, although I haven't done very many funerals in the past 15 years, probably, because of the way my, my work is, has developed. But nonetheless, I'm always amazed at people when they are surprised that somebody died. It is appointed, brethren, unto and man that we die. Every one of us are going to die. And so you look to the person to your right or to the person to your left. I mean, one of you are going to bury the other. Let's just face the facts here. And I realize that that's, a, that's not a very popular thing to say, but it's real. And sometimes we need to face what's real. But that's not really what I'm talking about is physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death. We all get to one point in our lives that we sin against God and death is introduced into our lives, spiritual death. In Romans 6 and verse 16, he talked about sin unto death. Then in Romans chapter 7 and verse 5, that we bring forth fruit unto death. But then we go back to Romans 8 and verse 2, because we want to look at the lighter side of this. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. Now people will talk about the law of sin and death, and they'll talk about it in different ways, but really the, it boils down to, you know what the law of sin and death is? If you sin, you'll die. That's the law of sin and death. And Christ has given us the victory over death. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Well, we also have triumphed over the world. And one passage that tells us about that, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And so we have triumphed over the world. We have triumphed over sin. 
We have triumphed over, over the uh, uh, death and we have triumphed over the world. Brethren, think about this triumph for a second. Because sometimes we get so caught up in talking about obedience and the things that we have to do in order to be saved. And don't misunderstand. I believe in obedience. I believe that we must do those things that God's called upon us to do. But the fact is, there is no forgiveness without the blood of Jesus Christ. The fact is, there's no redemption without the ransom price paid for our redemption. That's Jesus. There's no salvation without the salvation that Jesus provided in his death. There is no justification without the justifier of them that turned to him in righteousness. There is no sanctification without the one that is able to sanctify us and to give us those things. Now, brethren, we might have a responsibility in all that, but let us not forget that our obedience ought to be motivated by the fact that he's provided forgiveness, that he's provided redemption, that he's provided salvation, that he's provided justification, that he's provided the sanctification that we need. God has provided that, and we are triumphant because God has provided those things for us. Well, we also know that we faithful Christians continue to triumph. Well, because of the, there are really several ways that God's provided for us that we can be and we can continue to be triumphant. I think back at the conquering of the nations of Palestine. Now that's the book of Joshua. Joshua was the, the great conqueror of those nations, seven nations that were greater and more powerful than Israel. And yet God promised them the conquering of those nations. And when you think about the conquering of those nations and the triumph that the people of Israel were able to accomplish, it's because of their leadership. Well, brethren, we have a great leader. We have the captain of our salvation. He's touched with our infirmities. He knows what it means to be tempted. Yet he's our leader. He's our commander. And if we will follow him, we also will be triumphant. And we can look back into the history of our own nation. And I've always I found it interesting when I was doing work over in Latvia. And we were teaching in the secondary school. I believe it was our second trip over there. And we were teaching in the secondary school. And every day, the, the principal, what we would call the principal, the schoolmasters, what they would call them. But this principal would invite us to her office. And we would have tea. And, well, she called it cookies. But it wasn't anything like what we call cookies. But anyway, she would invite us to her, to her office. And she said one day, and we had been there probably a week and, and been teaching every day. And she said, you know, if you would teach something else, you'd have a whole lot more students. And I thought about that for a little bit. And, and I was kind of curious, not that I was really interested, but I was a little bit curious. And I said, well, what, what do you think we ought to teach? And she said, Civil War history. 
of the United States. I don't know why that was interesting to her. She said, you would fill up the whole auditorium if you would teach about Civil War history. And I finally, I said to her, I'd rather have five students. We had more than that, but I said, I'd rather have five students who are interested in spiritual matters than a thousand that's interested in war history. Brethren, that's our leader. He leads us in the battle and his battles are not physical. It's not battles of, of flesh and blood. It's not battles of political power. It's not battles over political themes and things like that. It's a spiritual battle. And if we follow that spiritual leader, if we follow our spiritual captain, if we follow him, we will be triumphant. I think back at Civil War history and some of the great leaders of, of, the, of both the North and the South and men that were willing to follow their captains into battle. And they became great victors. Brethren, we've got to follow our great captain. And we won't have the victories as far as this world is concerned, but we'll have the ultimate victory. And we'll conquer and continue to conquer in this life. But then we have great weapons. It is interesting. I, I think it's really more than interesting when Paul wrote about our weaponry and there are six different weapons that he wrote about. Three weapons that we are to have on and be in preparation for all the time. And then three, as we go into battle, then we pick up the sword and we pick up the shield and we pick up the helmet and we go out to battle. And those three then is when we actually do the battling, but the others, we stand in preparation with those other three things. But twice in that context, and we're not talking about a lot of verses, but twice in that context, he said, put on the whole armor of God. If you want to be victorious, don't just put on three that you like. If you want to be victorious, don't just pick out one or two or three or four that you like. Put on the whole panoply of God. Put on the whole armor of God. And then we can be victorious. And then we also have that victorious faith. Faith is the victory we sing. Do we really believe it? You know, I mentioned to the kids tonight at Sunshiners and that there are two opposites. There's fear and there's faith. Those are the two opposites. And when you look back in Bible history and you look at the, the various ones that were defeated, it was because they looked through the eyes of man and they feared their enemies rather than looking at God and looking for what God can do for us. They were looking at man and they were fearful. The world in which we live is a world that puts fear into its citizens. Read the news and read all the different things about the coronavirus. I mean, they're putting fear within us. I don't know about you. I don't want to be afraid. 
I don't want to be fearful. I don't want to be like that. I want to have faith. And okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying the coronavirus isn't real. I'm not saying that at all because I do believe it is real. But so what? If the coronavirus gets me, huh? I mean, I'm just going to paradise. That's, that's the reality right there. Okay. You know, so what? If it gets me. Brethren, we cannot allow the world to put the fear in us. We've got to be victorious. We have to have faith. Do we not believe that God will take care of us? Do we not believe in the promises of God? Could you imagine? Now think about this for a second. Could you imagine being Abraham in the Ur of Chaldees? And you'd been there for 80 years. 80 years. And God says, Get thee out of thy homeland and from thy kindred and from thy father's place into a land that I will show you. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And, they, and Abraham having to pick up all of his things to go. And you know what I've always noted? And it's not some, something that I've thought of. It's something that I've been taught. Abraham might not have known or he did not know where he was going, but he knew the one that sent him. He believed God. And there were three great tests of his faith. And all of them were things that most people would fear and be in great fear. But Abraham uh, was able to overcome that fear and able by faith to do what God said. And the three great tests were leaving his homeland the sacrifice of Isaac and also the birth, well, the birth of Isaac and then the sacrifice of Isaac. And Abraham, I mean, could you imagine Abraham taking his son? And this wasn't a small distance. This would have been several hours, probably even a couple of days walk to go to Mount Moriah, if it's the same Mount Moriah that we think that it is where the temple would be later built. And Abraham thinking about the fact that he's getting ready to offer up his son. Wouldn't you be afraid? Wouldn't good common sense say to you, I can't do that. Now the Hebrews writer gives us an insight into that, that, that Abraham thought about the resurrection. And he thought that God would raise him up. But the fact is, the Hebrew writer also recorded it in past tense that he, he killed his son. Because if God had not stopped him, he would have done it. But by faith, he acted. And by faith, he was victorious. And then the, uh, we must abound in, in works. And, of course, the works we're talking about are motivated by love and by, by faith. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, the end of the great faith or the end of the great resurrection chapter. Uh, he said, uh, <laughs> uh, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we have Christ with us. And because of Christ, we have triumphed and we're able to triumph. Well, then we also have then 
the fact that Christians will triumph ultimately. Now, very quickly, will ultimately triumph over death. And I chose 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58, and, and we don't have time to read that all that, but this section will be sufficient for us. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is, de is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we'll be able to triumph over the curse of sin. In Revelation 22, in verse 3, there John the Revelator said, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And then finally, we'll be able to triumph over the woes of this world. Now, what are the woes of this world? Well, listen to Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 4. He said, and I, John, <coughs> saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared for a bride adorned for her husband. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, neither nor crying, neither shall there be any pain, for the former things are passed away. The woes of this world are the tears. Isn't this world full of tears? Well, of course. We, we tear up all the time for various things that have come upon us. There's no more death. We face death. You probably remember, as I do, the first time when someone I knew and was old enough to remember when they passed away, my folks took us to the funeral. It had an impact. And it probably has an impact on you as well. But there will be no more death there. Nothing to separate. And all the tears of our eyes and the sorrow and the crying, it's all gone. As far as this world is concerned, there's pain. And we all recognize the different pains that we have. And when we have pains in our feet, we have pains in our legs, we have pains in our backs, pains in her chest, pains in her arms, pains in the neck, and pains in the head. <laughs> I mean, from head to toe, we have pains, but it'll be all gone. The woes of this world will be gone. If faithful Christians will have the ultimate triumph, then that's what I want. I want to be a faithful Christian. It's not really difficult. So how do I become a faithful Christian? Well, there's no way that in two or three minutes that we can talk about all the things that belong, that, that belong to a faithful Christian. But I think the number one thing is we must remember that we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to God. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. We must worship and we must not ever forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, Hebrews 10 and verse 25. And I realize that 
A person can fake, can forsake the assembly and still be faithful, I suppose, in some way. But the reality is, is that when a person begins to forsake the assembly, it usually show a greater and a more significant problem within their lives. We must do our best. And let's think about it for a second. I mean, we assemble together one purpose of our assembling. And if you look back at the context of, of Hebrews 10 and verse 25, one purpose of our assembling together is to encourage one another. Let's, let's be fair about this. Are you encouraged when you see someone that's not here and not here for frivolous reasons? Or are you encouraged by it? I think you know the answer. It, takes a, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. We encourage each other by being present with each other. We must study the word of God. We must also labor three different times in the book of Titus. And I've thought about preparing this as a lesson that I know I have in the past, but looking at the three different times that he encouraged Titus to labor, not labor in order to earn salvation, but labor because of our salvation. We've got to get the motivation in there right. We need to understand Christ paid the price and because he paid the price then we must do those things and we must build one another up. And in the end, he says, and I will give thee a crown of life. And I was talking about this to the kids also. There are two different words in the original language, the Koine Greek, for the word crown. One is diadem, and we sing about the diadem, although I don't know that everybody knows what that means, but it's talking about a ruling crown. But the other word crown, and whenever you see like crown of life, different things like that, there are five or six places where that's used or something similar to that is used. It's oftentimes the word Stephanos and Jody's name is Stephanie or her real name is Stephanie. And that's where that name comes from. And Stephen comes from that particular word. And it's the Stephanos crown. When, when someone wins a race, or some athletic competition. Nowadays, we give them a, an award and they have that thing that goes around their uh, neck and the big medal that's on the end of that. But at that time, they put a crown on their heads. Now, it was a crown of different things and different places had different types of crowns. Usually, it was a crown of some type of leaves. Some places, it was oak leaves. Other places, there was olive leaves. And other places, other different types of leaves. But that was the victory crown. Also, not only was it used with reference to athletic competition, it was used as far as a victorious conqueror, maybe a general or somebody of, of great status as far as their victory, is, as far as military conflict is concerned. And sometimes they would put them on a victory horse, which was a white horse, and they would put a crown on their head and give them a victory crown. Now, this is not a crown of gold or a crown composed of silver or a crown composed of gold and silver and stones. But the promise in Revelation 2 and verse 10 
is a crown composed of life. I mean, that's what the promise is. It's a reference to eternal life. And if we will be victorious, be victorious in the past when we became a Christian, continue our victories as far as this world is concerned, and ultimately that victory crown composed of life will be ours. That's what I look forward to, and I hope you look forward to it as well. I believe in the promises of God, and I'm quite confident you believe in, in them too. Do you believe that God will provide for you that victory crown of life? If not, maybe you need the prayers of the church to have that confidence and security that God has provided for us. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come. Together we stand and sing to encourage you.